0: Very excited, can't wait to get things going, music. Welcome to Book, a Bible podcast for everybody. I am Josh Way. This is a podcast for people who long for a fun and intellectually honest exploration of the history and literature of the Bible without all the doctrine and hairspray and spaceships. This show is neither religious nor irreligious. We leave that up to you and your doctor. We're just here for the text. We've been looking at the early Christian texts of the Greek New Testament, specifically the Gospels of Mark, Matthew, and Luke, traditionally labeled the Synoptic Gospels for the basic similarities in their portrayals of Jesus. There's a fourth Gospel, attributed to John, which is usually considered apart from the synoptics, not least because of its radically different style and unique portrait of Jesus. We'll discover momentarily what makes John's Gospel such a surprising read, but first I want to apply some of my trademark scrutiny to the notion that the synoptics represent a homogenous presentation of Jesus. We've already seen that, though they share common sources and a narrative kernel, the Gospels of Mark, Matthew, and Luke also differ in many important details, small and not so small. Lumping them together as basically the same does a great disservice to the unique voice of each text, and creates a facade of homogeneity that makes a text like John's Gospel seem like some kind of a problem that has to be managed. Traditionally, this has meant over-apologizing for John's apparently Greek point of view and his artistic storytelling choices. But the fact is that each gospel tells the story of Jesus from a unique point of view, and all four of them are overflowing with artistic storytelling. The best way to manage the material is to allow each gospel to speak for itself and to put concerns about harmony and contradiction aside while you do it. So what exactly is it that makes John's gospel so different from the other ones? Well, see for yourself. Here are the opening verses. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was close beside God, and the Word was God. In the beginning, He was close beside God. All things came into existence through Him. Not one thing that exists came into existence without Him. Life was in Him, and this life was the light of the human race. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Skipping down to verse 14, And the Word became flesh and lived with us. We gazed upon his glory like that of a Father's only Son, full of grace and truth. Where Matthew and Luke opened their Gospels with genealogies and stories about the birth of Jesus, and Mark skipped it altogether, John's Gospel opens with a sort of philosophical prologue about Jesus' heavenly origins. He goes all the way back to creation, invoking Genesis with the phrase, in the beginning, and making an apparent claim that Jesus himself was present when God made the world. Now, the language does seem to be intentionally ambiguous. He was God, but he was also with God and near to God. But the author's point seems to be the word of God, or logos in Greek, the wisdom, will, and essence of Israel's God, the creator, is somehow incarnate or embodied in Jesus. Now, this is standard church doctrine on our side of history, but for our purposes as text critics, we have to acknowledge that this goes beyond anything we've seen up to this point. The Synoptic Gospels were about a human prophet who was vindicated and revealed to be the Messiah, Israel's long-awaited king, and the Son of God, a genuine representative and agent of Israel's God on earth. But here in John... Jesus is a manifestation of God himself, or at least of his logos. John then begins his narration of Jesus' life and deeds, and while the characters, settings, and climax of the story are all familiar, the events and details are radically different throughout. In fact, most of the scenes and plot points that we know from the synoptics are missing here. Jesus is not born of a virgin. He isn't baptized by John the Baptist. He isn't tempted by the devil. He doesn't proclaim the kingdom of God, and he doesn't tell any parables or cast out any demons. There's no Sermon on the Mount, no Lord's Prayer, no Transfiguration, no Last Supper. The message and methods of this Jesus seem to be wildly different from those of the apocalyptic prophet from the other Gospels. Curious indeed. The first episode in John's narrative Involves Jesus and John the Baptist, and it's a good example of the unique vibe of this gospel. In the Synoptics, John baptized Jesus as a sort of inauguration for his messianic career, and then God's voice declared from heaven, This is my son, listen to him. In John's gospel, Jesus isn't baptized, but the Baptist is the one who announces that Jesus is the Son of God. He also refers to Jesus as the Lamb of God who takes away the world's sin. Which is a unique saying to this book. Keep that one filed away for later. The text explains that John says these things as, quote, evidence about Jesus. And that's a major keyword for this gospel. This is a Jesus whose primary task is to prove his identity so that people will believe in him. This is actually in strong contrast to Synoptic Jesus who healed and blessed in the name of God's kingdom, but refused to glorify himself with magic tricks. When the devil tempts Jesus to perform a sign in the wilderness, he retorts, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And in Matthew 12, when some Jewish leaders beg Jesus to give them a sign, he refuses, saying, No sign will be given to this wicked generation. In Mark 8, Jesus orders his disciples to keep his messianic identity a secret, But here in John, he's on a mission from day one to reveal his divinity to everyone who will listen. And so the first 12 chapters of John's Gospel are structured around seven signs that Jesus performs in public to reveal his identity. Each one takes the same basic format. At some significant Jewish ceremony, festival, or location, Jesus performs a miracle or a sign that illuminates something about him and people believe. Here's the rundown. Number one, in John chapter 2, Jesus is at a wedding in his hometown when the wine runs out. He turns about 200 gallons of water into wine, and John says he, quote, displayed his glory and his disciples believed. Number two, in John 4, in the same region of Galilee, Jesus heals the dying son of a royal official, which I guess might mean a Herodian Jew or perhaps even a Roman. Whoever it is, Jesus tells him, Unless you see these signs, you won't ever believe. Number three, in John 5, Jesus travels to Jerusalem during an unnamed festival to a healing pool near the temple, where he heals a paralytic man. He performs the miracle on the Sabbath, and John tells us that this is when the Judean authorities began to, quote, persecute Jesus. Number four, in John chapter 6, during Passover, Jesus feeds the crowd of 5,000 the only one of Jesus' miracles to be recorded in all four Gospels. In this telling, Jesus follows the sign up with the statement, I am the bread of life. Anyone who comes to me will never be hungry. Number five, in the same chapter, Jesus' disciples are out on a boat on the Sea of Galilee when they spot Jesus walking out to them on the water. Number six, in John chapter nine, Jesus heals a man who was born blind, announcing, I am the light of the world. And number seven, in John 11, Jesus resurrects a man named Lazarus, who's been dead for several days, declaring, I am the resurrection and the life. Anyone who believes in me will live, even if they die. Jesus makes several of those I am statements, seven or eight, depending on your criteria, which some interpreters take to be an additional reference to Jesus' divinity specifically invoking the moment in Exodus when Israel's God revealed himself to Moses in a burning bush and identified himself as I am. And while we're on the subject of Jesus' unique use of language in John, we should backtrack a little and examine two of his most famous sayings that are unique to this gospel. In John chapter 3, Jesus tells a prominent Jewish teacher named Nicodemus that he must be, quote, born again. Later in the same passage, Jesus promises that everyone who believes in him will receive, quote, eternal life. Being born again and receiving eternal life. These phrases are so well known today, even among non-religious people, that we might forget how strange they sound here in the New Testament, especially in light of the message of Jesus according to the Synoptic Gospels. Now, first, what does it mean to be born again? This phrase has become a sort of litmus test for belonging among fundamentalists, and a byword of bad religion for many people outside the church. For most people today, being born again means adopting a particular brand of religion and the ideologies that come packaged with it. This language has had a huge impact on Western culture, especially in America, considering it only appears in this one passage in John. If you're confused or weirded out by the phrase born again, you're not alone. Nicodemus asks Jesus to clarify, and he does. We are all born of flesh, Jesus says, but we must also be born of spirit as well. Another, perhaps more precise, way of translating this Greek phrase is born from above. Essentially, it's a metaphor about obtaining a new kind of life, one that comes from heaven, or rather one that's in tune with God's character as revealed by Jesus. It's not too far from what Jesus calls repentance in the synoptics, I think. But what about this eternal life business? Not unlike the phrase kingdom of God, this phrase has often been misunderstood as a reference to the afterlife, to going to heaven when you die. Once again, however, a more precise translation of the Greek sends us in a better direction. The phrase doesn't mean eternal life as in life that goes on and lasts forever, but rather the life of the new age. Lots of Christians don't like the sound of that, but that's really what it means. It's actually John's poetic way of describing the kingdom of God, the coming reign of God on earth that all Jews were anticipating. So in one sense, Jesus' message according to John is similar to his message in Mark, Matthew, and Luke. If Israel leaves off her old way of life and puts on a new one, that is, if they are born from above, they will participate in God's coming age, or inherit eternal life. In the synoptics, this was accomplished by repenting of sin, and in the case of Matthew, by keeping every letter of the Torah law. In John, the word repent never appears, but Jesus repeatedly invites everyone he encounters to believe in me. In fact, right here in chapter 3, Jesus summarizes his message in what may be the most famous of all Bible verses. John three sixteen, This is how much God loved the world, enough to give his only special son, so that everyone who believes in him should not be lost, but should share in the life of God's new age. Another aspect of John that differs from the other gospels is the geography of Jesus, specifically his relationship to Jerusalem. In the synoptics, Jesus traveled and preached throughout the land of Palestine, moving slowly toward his single fateful visit to the capital city. Here in John, however, Jesus takes multiple trips to Jerusalem. In fact, he's there already in chapter 2, driving the merchants out of the temple, an event that served as the climax of his ministry in the other Gospels. In those texts, the temple tantrum was the inciting incident which sealed Jesus' fate. But here, it's the beginning of his public ministry. And it's the raising of Lazarus in chapter 11, which sets Holy Week into motion. John 12 narrates Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem, which takes place, quote, six days before Passover. And while John's gospel lacks a Last Supper story, there's a somewhat similar account in chapter 13, where Jesus meets with his disciples in private, not to eat a Passover meal, but to wash their feet and tell them that he must leave them. Verse 33, children, I'm with you only a little longer. You will look for me, and as I said to the Judeans, where I am going, you cannot follow. I am giving you a new commandment, and it's this. Love one another. Just as I have loved you, so you must love one another. This is how everybody will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for each other. The confused disciples ask Jesus where he's going, and he replies in chapter 4, verse 2. There's plenty of room to live in my father's house. If that wasn't the case, I'd have told you, wouldn't I? I'm going to get a place ready for you. And when I go to get a place ready for you, I'll come back and take you with me so you can be there where I am. This is more language that has been traditionally heard as a promise of afterlife reward. In fact, until recently, most translations have had Jesus saying, in my father's house are many mansions. But that's not what's going on here. Jesus is actually quoting from the traditional Israelite wedding ceremony wherein the groom tells the bride... I'm going back to my father's home to get a room ready for us, and then I'll come and get you. He's comparing his relationship with his followers to a marriage and promising he'll be back to live with them after he goes away for a short time. It strikes us as a metaphor about his death and resurrection, but the disciples are still confused, and so Thomas says, Master, we don't know where you're going, so how can we know the way? Jesus' response in chapter 14, verse 6 is famous. I am the way the truth, and the life. Nobody comes to the Father except through me. Here's a verse that has often been taken out of context and used as a statement about the exclusivity of Christianity. The only way to get to heaven is through Jesus. But in context, it's not about going to heaven or even about Christianity. It's about Israel, represented by Jesus' disciples, and their relationship to their God, embodied in Jesus. If they want to see God, They can just look at Jesus to know what he's like. And what does God look like in Jesus? He's a God of love whose only commandment is love one another and who loves his people like a groom loves a new bride. This isn't an exclusivist religious claim. It's far more radical than that. It's a claim that the God of Israel, Jesus, and the Bible is first and foremost a God of love. That's not the way everyone has traditionally imagined God to be, even in the Bible. Over the next few chapters, Jesus continues to teach his followers, frequently repeating his central instruction, love one another as I loved you. When he reaches the end of his lengthy discourse in chapter 17, he prays for his followers that God will keep them safe, united, and, surprise, surprise, loving one another. Then in chapter 18, Jesus is arrested and hauled before the high priests, who briefly interrogate him before passing him off to Pontius Pilate, the local Roman governor. Jesus' interaction with Pilate is a bit more juicy here than in the Synoptics, where Jesus says almost nothing. Here's John's version. Are you the king of the Jews? Pilate asked. Was it your idea to ask that? asked Jesus. Or did other people tell you about me? I'm not a Jew, am I? retorted Pilate. Your own people and the chief priests have handed you over to me. What have you done? My kingdom isn't the sort that comes from this world, replied Jesus. If my kingdom were from this world, my supporters would have fought to stop me being handed over to the Judeans. For John, the confrontation between Jesus and Pilate isn't a conflict between Israel and Rome. It's a collision between an earthly empire and the kingdom of God. And when Pilate flexes his Roman authority, Jesus fires back, you have no authority over me that wasn't given to you from above. Shifting gears from the political to the poetical, we begin to notice something profound going on with John's storytelling as the passion plays out. In this gospel, Jesus will die on the day of Passover at noon as the sacrificial lambs are being slaughtered in the temple, not on the day after Passover as in the synoptics. John has been counting down the week until Passover and thus the death of Jesus. By that count, this is day six. And so when Pilate presents Jesus to the crowd and announces, here is the man, we are reminded that God created mankind on the sixth day. As Jesus hangs on the cross at the end of the sixth day, he announces, it is finished as he dies. And we recall that on the seventh day, God finished the work of creation. And as God rested on the Sabbath, so too will Jesus rest in his tomb on this Sabbath. Well, that's all fascinating, but what does creation have to do with the crucifixion of Jesus? Well, in chapter 20, we finally see what John is up to. In this account of the resurrection, we're told that Mary Magdalene comes to the tomb, quote, on the first day of the week, while it is still dark. This is the eighth day, or day one, of a new week. Mary, and us the readers, will discover that Jesus is no longer dead, and John's implication is that this is the first day of a new world, a new creation. Jesus' death and vindication, according to John, aren't just about saving souls for the afterlife, it was all about renewing and regenerating all of creation itself. And if we missed any of the clues up to this point, John throws us another bone. Mary encounters the risen Jesus but doesn't recognize him, assuming him to be the gardener. Jesus then appears to some of the disciples, saying, Peace be with you, and then he breathes on them, which is yet more creation imagery. The stunned disciples report back to the rest of the group what they've seen, and Thomas refuses to believe. Unless I see the mark of the nails in his hands and put my fingers into the nail marks, I won't believe. A week later, Jesus appears to the full group and presents himself to thomas saying go ahead believe the disciple examines jesus wounds and cries out my lord and my god jesus says you believe because you've seen me god's blessing on those who don't see and yet believe to the last page the emphasis of john's gospel is on evidence and believing why is this could it be because this gospel was written substantially later than the synoptic gospels as late as 95 CE or later, perhaps even early in the 2nd century. The distance between the text and the events it interprets could explain a lot about its odd tone and its obsession with proof and belief. A late date might also explain the portrayal of Jesus as a pre-existing divine being rather than a virgin-born human anointed and venerated by God. But even as we consider the undeniable uniqueness and strangeness of John's Gospel, let's not lose sight of the fundamental continuity between all four Gospels. In each presentation, Jesus' message is not about achieving reward in the afterlife, but about renewed life in this world, John's new creation. Despite all of their peculiar emphases and discrepancies, every Gospel boils Jesus' prophetic message down to love of neighbor. Whether it's repentance or being born again or inheriting the life of the new age, each invites its readers to follow after Jesus in his way of selfless love. We've no shortage today of religious interpretations of Jesus' message, but we'll always have these four remarkable ancient books to help us rediscover how the earliest Christians understood it. Next time, we'll begin our exploration of the literature about the early church, about how those first followers of Jesus attempted to put his message into action. This has been Book, a Bible podcast for everybody, and I have been Josh Way. If you enjoyed this podcast, I encourage you to share it with your online friends and family. If you have any comments, questions, or constructive feedback, email me at book at joshway.com. You can also leave a voicemail at 801-760-3013, and I'll try to respond on the podcast. Read the book blog and find more content at book.joshway.com. That's it for me, Bible pals. I'll catch you next time.